episode 97 of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, yeah, we're going to kind of get underway here. Of course, a lot of big things, a lot of things in the news, some of them very bad. But uh, here we go. First of all, I got to make a correction. Uh, last podcast, I was talking about the, the 1916 Takarev rifle, the you know, which kind of vied for the first assault rifle. That is actually the 1916 Fedorov rifle, Fedorov. Um, it, it was designed by a different guy, not Takarev, the guy who designed the pistol, and then later the SVT-40, and a few other things. Uh, it was an earlier designer, um, Fedorov. Very nice design that was select fire and fired the uh, 6.5 Japanese cartridge. Not really an intermediate cartridge, but certainly on the way low end of the uh, battle rifle cartridges. So anyway, I uh, just wanted to make sure that that was corrected. Okay, the, obviously the big elephant in the room are two shootings that happened. One in Florida and one in Colorado. Uh, the Colorado one... You know, I, I don't know. The guy is evidently had a Middle Eastern name and what his ties are to, if there are any, to any kind of extremism is, is unknown. I just got a funny feeling it's going to play in there somewhere that this guy somehow, somewhere is tied up with extremism. Just has to be. I mean, just I got that feeling. So we'll wait. have to wait and see on that and uh, see if the result is really any different. Guy in Florida apparently went and shot up massage parlors, and, and the majority of the uh, victims were were uh, women of Asian descent. Um, you know, I, I just... Those massage parlors, let's be real. I mean, those are, those are fronts for prostitution, human trafficking, and probably drug dealing and a few other things. I mean, I, I don't know firsthand... But um, the indications are those places draw um, other activities with them that are outside the law. So, um, you know, that's always going to happen. But basically the bottom line with both of these incidences are that, you know, my civil rights, my rights to own a gun, which is a civil right, a constitutional right, a God-given right, uh, those aren't predicated upon the actions of bad people. Uh, bad people misuse cars. They misuse knives. They misuse guns. They misuse poison. They misuse all kinds of things. The uh, Boston Marathon bombers misused, what is it, pressure cookers, made bombs out of those. And yet we're not running around going, hey, take, take uh, pressure cookers off the market. Nor is there this ugly, very ugly racist attitude as exemplified by, I don't even know what her full name is, but it's uh, Kamala Harris's ugly little niece who is blaming it on white men because they're the problem, they're the terrorists in society, which is a complete lie. Um, you know, you can blame it on whatever kind of group you want, but you can't go and say, well, look at all the crime in Detroit. Black people shouldn't own guns. If you had that as a as, as a position, you'd, you'd be ridiculed like crazy. You know, it's, it's just, it shows you how our society and our social discourse has just devolved into nothing. I mean, just devolved into nothing. And, and you have, you know, the people who the country's been turned over to, effectively, 
a, a senilic old man and a goofball. Harris is a goofball. Her niece is a goofball too. But Harris in particular is a goofball. Uh, everybody knows she was supposed to be the new Barack Obama, the female version of Barack Obama. And, and she's not. She's she's uh, She just doesn't have the gravitas. Remember that was a favorite word of Democrats when they talked about George W. Bush. You know, he doesn't have the gravitas. Well, if there's a person without gravitas... Um, if you put it, if you look up no gravitas, I mean, her picture would be right next to it. She has none. She she's giggly, stupid, um, doesn't think through what she says or does. I mean, she's clearly a puppet. You know, the deep state is now in control of the White House. Um, Biden is going to do what they say. Biden, I don't think, has the mental will or capacity to resist. I mean, he can't run. His foreign policy is going to be a mess because he can't meet foreign leaders because he's a crazy old man. You know, he can't even climb up the steps of his own airplane. He's a crazy old man. So Harris, who is supposed to be the heir apparent, um, I don't think she's going to measure up either. This is this is heading towards a disaster, and everybody can see it. But right now, nobody wants to wants to stand up and. Uh, uh, basically call it for what it is i mean two incompetents are ahead and and you know what and if they do something on guns try to do some executive action or some other nonsense first of all i don't know what they will try or if it will stand up in court i tend to doubt it but hey they were looking they were looking to go after guns no matter what happens these types of shootings do not justify their opinions or anything they might use them as evidence but their opinions are already set and formed and they just look for scraps of information that support their positions they're not thinking the way through they're not doing any kind of analysis they're not coming up with an opinion they're not seeing where the facts lead them they are already there and they're just looking for things that uh, support their position so you know they they are what they are and they're very disappointing extremely disappointing but Harris's uh, niece, what a despicable, foul, little, ugly creature she is. Really disgusting. Okay, let's go back. There's, you know, there's as much as I wanted to avoid it because I think it's ridiculous. But the royal idiots are still in the news. And we, we talked about, you know, it, it'd be interesting to know what kind of guns that the royal family has. But I don't think we'll ever, we'll ever see them. Um, but it would be interesting to know how many there are, what they are, and how far back they go, and things like that would be would be fascinating. Uh, however, you know, I don't think there's going to be a monarchy around very much longer. Uh, I'll tell you this right now. The British monarchy, Britain as a country is, is essentially expiring, okay? It's in hospice. Great Britain is in hospice. Um... They've allowed so much unbridled immigration that they don't have a national character anymore. And when you don't have a national character, you're not going to really be supporting the queen and her monarchy, which are, face it, as one estimate I saw is they're worth $88 billion. $88 billion is a chunk of change. Now, I think that's not just their bank balance. I mean, that includes... You know, the castles they own, the jewels they own, 
all the stuff they own but that's still a fairly heavy chunk of change it's it's getting up there with microsoft i mean it's get it's getting bill gates rich that's that's how freaking rich that all is and and really their country is not all that prosperous great britain is not all that prosperous they don't make much anymore um they're they're comparatively small um it's so it's a it's a big deal and people are now starting to scrutinize who are these people and why do we want to keep them in this ceremonial charade of that they're part of the the government and they actually lead the country they they don't um they actually don't and when uh prince harry and his uh <laughs> squealing little little spouse you know a broken down sitcom actress when they start leveling i mean the most damaging thing you can level against anybody especially that position is the racism you know they're racist and that's that's just what's been coming out um just those little remarks about they somebody wondered you know what skin tone their child would have has now become this full-blown racist thing and um you know, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's comical because they are going to, they're going to be gone. When Queen Elizabeth dies, and, and face it, she's 94, so she's not going to last forever. We're not talking 20 years from now. We're talking a year or two or three or four from now at the most, you know. I mean, just, they've already lived, they've already lived, they've already lived, um, you know past the the normal age where most people most people go so um you know kind of every day is a blessing so you know they, it could be, it could happen any time and when the queen goes i think this monarchy might be finished i don't know if there's any appetite for a king charles i don't you know <laughs> king charles um i don't know and uh, the only one with any brains as far as keeping the family business going seems to be prince william but you know i don't know again you know why if you're if you're member of the uk why would you want to pay taxes to keep these people in aston martins and jaguars and and you know all the fancy cars the fancy clothes you know the fancy hunting trips the fancy everything the fancy weddings and all why would you do that i mean would you resent your tax dollars going to that? I think that is indeed the case. Um, I think at a certain point they will have to either massively restructure, or they will uh, they will basically just be gone. It's like, yeah, you might be the Prince of Wales, but that doesn't mean anything because you could be a manager of a department store too. It, it might be a very a very empty empty title at some point in the not too distant future in the not too distant future so we'll see what happens but the the bigger implication is they have people who aren't into the national character and who have no real um attachment to the institutions and that's, that's kind of where we're going to a little different in a little different manner but that's that's where we're going to we have people who don't care about the institutions of law and order law and order we just don't have it learning civics education i mean we have a lot of a lot of people who just believe that hey they should just get a check from the government and that's that's what it is and uh you know we will see within the next 10 years 
because they can't always count on COVID bills to bail out all these poorly run blue states. But you'll see California. You'll see a couple of them. They'll go under. And uh, who knows what that's going to look like, but it's not going to be pretty. I guarantee that. Okay, next thing. I kind of missed it, but uh, I picked up on it late, I should say. There's a, there's a YouTuber guy, a gun tube guy, um, does military arms channel. Um, videos aren't bad. You know, the videos aren't bad. They're usually kind of reviews of, of certain things. And, you know, you again, they don't interest me because it's like the ones I don't really like the videos where somebody's out shooting and saying, wow, this was really cool. This is really great. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, well, that's not the spectator sport. I do kind of enjoy ones of matches where you see somebody go through different stages. You're watching them shoot, but they're not they're not plinking. You're kind of like seeing how they do because you kind of know what the stage is and you go through it. That's why in range their videos on those types of things were much better. They haven't produced any lately, but they they were much better. But um, anyway, this guy he he basically somehow the state arsenal or the 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 arsenal in Hungary, which which makes Hungarian weapons, and Hungary is now a NATO member. They produced, I think it was a hundred um, SVD rifles, basically Soviet pattern SVD sniper rifles with the same kind of scope, the whole deal. You know, welcome to 1964. You know that that's it. Very cool rifles, collectability, awesome, uh, fun to shoot, awesome still a very effective weapon it's certainly not it's certainly not state-of-the-art but it's very very cool and a lot of people like them and a lot of people want them and they haven't been on the market there were some Russian ones there were some Chinese ones um, a couple decades ago but you know sanctions and and uh, embargoes and all the rest of this has made those dry up and they're very expensive these were supposed to come in and be a little less expensive than the current ones on the secondary market. However, this guy, he, he did a review of one, talks about how awesome it is, and then somehow he bought all of them coming in. I don't know, I don't know how all that, that worked, but and then he started putting them on Gunbroker in onesies and twosies, hoping that he would uh, hoping that he would, you know, score big money, that people would pay a lot of money. They were supposed to go for about between four and five thousand a piece, which is a lot of money. That's a lot of dough um, for a single rifle. That's that's a lot of money. But um, his interloping and kind of getting the get buying the whole shipment and then putting them out uh, in an attempt to raise the prices up a lot higher. And some of the fake bidders on Gunbroker actually got it up to $999,000. People who were never going to pay. Was it legal? Yes, probably. Was it ethical? Absolutely not. And, uh, you know, this is the same guy who kind of forms an opinion, you know, that the uh, uh, medium-sized service automatics like the M17, M18, the Smith & Wesson M&P, the Glock 19, were going to be obsolete by these little kind of smaller guns that held 12 and 13 cartridges, um, and even more in some cases probably. Um, you know, but not everybody has federal ammunition delivering you free 
free ammo and you don't get and not everybody can go out and shoot every single day and build that kind of proficiency um, it, it takes it, it totally didn't take any of that into account that the the average man average woman a medium-sized gun is a very good fit a very very good fit um, and we talked about that last podcast so you know this is the same guy so all I can say is you know it's one of those buyer beware situations um, here's a guy who basically tried to corner the market on a cool product and and just line his own pockets um, you know and the gun world has got people who are trying to line their own pockets I mean I, I think these ammo guys are doing the same thing how do we know you know we assume we make an assumption in the gun culture that the guy who runs a big ammo company or is in charge of ammunition production for one of these conglomerates that seems to buy up sporting goods uh, companies we assume that this guy's a gun guy and that he's doing the best for the industry that he's doing the best for the shooting public yada 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 and and you know the industry is full of people like that who do want to help shooters and who do want to help gun culture Hodgdon powder are awesome dudes they are awesome they are into shooting they are into the gun culture they are into the thing they are awesome people you know that whole family it's in a couple different generations now I think but it's uh, they are awesome people but some of these other guys I mean I think some of these guys are just production engineers and what they do for a hobby may not even involve guns or shooting at all and if they can make three times as much off a box of nine millimeter you know the twelve dollar box of nine millimeter selling for thirty five thirty six dollars now is uh is is pretty much the norm and you know what that's not going to help that does not help but it lines their pockets so we got to kind of look at all these people and say whose best interest do you have at heart and if it's their own uh we should treat them accordingly especially when things loosen up which everybody's just waiting for that day that's for sure that brings me to another kind of what I call disturbing trend um, gun rights activists first of all I think you know the stereotype guns gun rights activist actually somebody like me you know the age the uh, um, ethnic group background you know all that kind of stuff but there are gun rights activists who do not fit that mold at all and who probably have differing views on on different things so there are a diversity a diverse group of gun rights activists and I don't care if they're LGBT I don't care what racial or ethnic group they come from gun rights activists are good there's only one case I can think of where they're not good and that is some people who you know if they're if they are sympathetic to Antifa they are sympathetic to any kind of terrorist style organization like that um, you know they're not real gun rights activists they're activists for something else and trying to leverage firearms into it and so you've got to be real careful about that some of these and and the YouTube might be a draw to that I have heard but I don't know proof that this this uh, fool that was on uh, in range TV's question question and answer uh, segment 
this tacty cool girlfriend um, I understand that there's some some link between her and some Antifa groups don't know that that's the case and fervently hope it is not but that's something to be on the guard of that's something to really be on on watch of um, you never know what some of these people believe in and uh, while I don't mind what they believe about other things I really don't um, you know I'm not going going to subscribe to a channel or listen to a person who's who's tied up with Antifa so gun rights activists um, you know yeah we actually now have to kind of examine them a little bit to see who they are and what other sorts of things that they're uh, that they're tied up in and most things hey I don't care you know you you want drugs legalized hey that's up to you um, but when it comes to gun rights I, you can't we cannot allow them to kind of even pull a portion of the gun culture or a portion of anything into the um, kind of into this this uh, radical activism way so yeah you have to be have to be careful <laughs> be careful of what you wish for a lot of that diversity is of and the YouTube seems to draw them so we'll see how that shakes out Oh, but I do have some positive news. Um, if anybody is still following it, I got one of those kits to home make percussion caps. And uh, so I made I made about 50 of these and uh, it turned out pretty good so far. Uh, they they were basically they all fired on my nipples when the chambers were empty. You know how a lot of people will fire an empty cap to clear the uh, flash hole of the nipple. Uh, so I basically uh, um, it passed that test. Everyone fired. I did load up a a uh, my oldest and kind of my rattiest percussion revolver, which is a Navy Arms uh, brass frame. You know, kind of a um, you know takeoff. Their their kind of version of what the Civil War um, Confederate copy of the um, 51 Navy would look like and you know I loaded one of those up and five out of six chambers fired successfully and the sixth sixth one which did not was my fault uh, I think there was a little bit of crud in the cap and it didn't quite ignite so I, I used two of the homemade caps and probably cleared it then the last just to get the uh, charge out of the uh, cylinder I used a regular percussion cap um, and the reason I did that was number one I wanted the cylinder to fire and number two I wanted to compare a, a store made a store-bought percussion cap with the homemade ones and they, they do seem to be a little bit more powerful you know this Remington cap no I'm sorry it was a CCI cap uh, the CCI cap was perceptibly barely perceptibly but perceptible that it, that it was a little more powerful so the homemade caps are good but they're not perfect and uh, I think that you know one of the things you have to pay particular attention to is cleanliness and the uh, also make sure there's no obstruction in the uh, um, in the cone or the nipple you know whatever you want to call it uh, make sure that that flash hole is is a uh, uh, good and uh, open um, other than that though they seem to operate like any others I what I like about them is they seem to fragment less 
the aluminum seems to hold together a little more so they don't jam they don't want to kind of come apart and jam the cylinder um, they're still not perfect I mean no a lot of percussion guns are a little persnickety and there's some fixes on the internet um, I don't really care for some of the fixes that are out there um, but we'll um, you know we'll keep experimenting with them I do have uh, a 51 Navy with Treso uh, nipples on it and you know those are a little more narrow so I have I, I have a little bit of worry that that not enough of the uh, flash will get through that smaller hole so we'll see we'll give it a try and see um, but it'll be a lot of fun we will have we will have a good time with that because it's going to be an interesting uh, um, journey to see how far those go but right now they work with triple F powder which is all I've tried it with um, pyrodex and some of these other ones they don't have any significantly different ignition qualities so I think um, you know if it'll if it'll do black powder it'll do the uh, substitutes also but we'll, we'll try those in due course but anyway so far it's thumbs up um, one last note on that is they are labor-intensive I mean it is definitely not you're not gonna crank out a thousand of them in a day um, from start to finish and you do have to let them dry overnight I'll get to that but uh, from start to finish you can turn out 50 caps in an hour and a half or two hours maybe you know just by punching out the the aluminum can uh, uh, the empty cup and then filling it with the uh, uh, mixing the uh, uh, the flash powder and then putting it inside and then using a drop of acetone uh, or rubbing alcohol to uh, um, basically harden it and get it get it uh, uh, packed into the the cap shell and then you have to let it let it dry overnight and uh, you know you can at two hours you could turn out 50 caps I think easily 50 caps will last you a while <laughs> with a cap and ball revolver because they don't load fast how they will do with a paper cartridge remains to be seen I don't think they will be that great I don't really shoot paper cartridges uh, for a variety of reasons but um, I don't know how they'll they'll do that I might make some up and try to see what how they how they do it you know it'll be that'll be another part of the adventure but that'll be down the road a little bit but so far thumbs up okay that closes that portion of the show now as you know my favorite part of the show is called questions and answers so the first question I have is we were out this weekend uh, firing uh, taking out some young younger people and firing my Moisin against sniper and when I told people you know when the people asked me at work how how did your uh, weekend go I told them about it and one guy said well how do you tell the authentic ones from the made up ones he goes I've heard that you know 90% or 95% of them are, are fake that the Moisin against snipers are fake they're just built out of genuine or out of they're built out of genuine Moisin rifles but they're they're infantry rifles and they were never used for sniper duty or anything and there are a lot of points there's a lot of conflicting information out on the internet I will say that what and there's also there's a lot of conflicting information there's no real convergence as to what makes a rifle completely authentic meaning this was a sniper rifle in World War II and this same rifle 
this same scope are sitting in you know my lap today um, lots of different things can happen the scopes can get changed some of the rifles were converted they made so many sniper rifles that after the war they said we don't need this many they converted some back to infantry rifles that's what they call the X snipers and enterprising individuals have uh, have moved those back um, reestablished them as sniping rifles is that an authentic Moisin Nagan sniper and I mean there, there's going to be levels I mean there's going to be different levels of authenticity some have some scopes that are authentic Soviet military scopes but they might have been made post-war um, some have been given out to Warsaw Pact countries or satellite the uh, satellite republics of the Soviet Union which all kind of handled them a little bit differently so there's no uniform way of of establishing it but I can tell you that um, there are some videos out there if you watch enough of them I think you can get a pretty good sense of what's authentic what isn't plus there are some forums out there uh, without doing even if you did a video people will just poo poo it and say oh no that's that's all wrong um, but it's one of those things there's no single answer there's no one single place that will crack the code on uh, complete 100% authenticity I'll say one thing um, and the prices of them are going up higher and higher you know uh, ones that are touted as authentic they want they're, they're going for around a K so um, it's definitely pays to do the homework but even if you get one that is not a hundred percent authentic and a hundred percent great you know rifle they are a lot of fun to shoot they're still a lot of fun to shoot the PU scope is outstanding it's an outstanding scope uh, for its time for its time now of course it's like every other you know 70 year old optic it's it's got its weaknesses compared to modern stuff but uh, compared to a lot of things at the time it's it was very forward-thinking very practical and very um, easy to use and effective so um, good rifle good rifle good scope and a lot of fun to shoot but you definitely have to do some homework there's no one single resource that'll give you the answer the next question is what do you know of open top revolver safety with modern cartridges okay these are I don't first of all I don't know much about them I know what they are they're they're replicas of the of either the cartridge conversions or like the 1872 Colt open top which was designed as a cartridge gun but it looked very much like the um, like the older conversions you could tell they they heavily influenced what it looked like and these are nice guns uh, they make them for cowboy action shooting they make them for people who like old west guns and, and you know they're they're very very good what I would say is um, I would not put high-speed ammo through those even though they're probably okay with it because they're built up as new guns the ones that are built up as new guns have of course the correct kind of steel they're they're probably pretty solid you could probably shoot a, a 38 load I would still stay away from plus P but um, that's that's kind of how that is the ones that have a conversion cylinder into a black powder gun um, I would say be very careful with those and shoot only the lightest 
practical loads, which are kind of the cowboy loads, you know. And if you hand load, it's the the trail boss powder with the you know kind of lighter lead bullet, you know. So you don't generate pressure. What you don't want to do with the cartridge conversion cylinder models based on a black powder gun is generate pressure. And it's the same way. The even even the uh, the modern made ones, you know, they it's an it's an older design. It's a hundred and man it's, it's like a 150 year old design so you you want to be careful even though it's made with modern materials and things want to be careful with those but with all that being said they look like a heck of a lot of fun they look historically awesome they just they just look historically awesome and i can see why people really like them i really can um but you know be careful you know you could take you could take a lot of old 38 caliber <laughs> You know, think think of this. You could take a lot of old 38 caliber revolvers and ream them out to 357, and because they'll accept the cartridge in the chamber, it does not make them safe. It does not make them safe. You know, imagine a Colt 1901 with a 357 uh, chamber, or even a 38 special chamber. It would it would uh, be a very dangerous gun to shoot high performance loads in and you know that's the dangerous part about like the colt 1901s they will take they will take a 38 special cartridge now hey if it's a wad cutter probably not a big deal probably not a big deal if it's a uh, corbon or supervel 125 grain hollow point well then you're probably gonna probably gonna have some uh some serious problems so we we'll go from there is okay one individual i was talking to he kind of he said his interest in new guns is waning and he's not interested in really buying anything even though guns are more available now and that's simply because of the ammo and he asked me if i felt the same way um to a degree i do uh to a degree i do um there are some guns we're not going to see ammo for for quite a while uh, i saw a 30 40 crag rifle for sale um kind of under what the market under market value but you know i mean you're not going to find 30 40 crag ammo you're just not if, by the time they get around to making it you know it could be it could be a long time it could be a long time same thing a lot of these you know in nine millimeter costing 36 dollars a box do I really need an 18-shot 9mm? I mean, um, shoot, that thing is almost going to be, well, it's going to be $15, perhaps $15 to uh, uh, fill the magazines in that. So I don't think I'm interested. I just don't think I'm interested. Um, there's a whole new, all kinds of stuff, stuff that was always expensive. It, you know, 5.7 by 28 was expensive before the pandemic i mean if you can even find it i imagine it's a lot more expensive now why buy and the, you know you see the price reflected in the ruger gun because that was selling for above msrp for a while when it was the new hotness now it's selling for below msrp <laughs> and it's no longer the new hotness so there's a there's a lot ammo prices are going to affect gun prices um, that just that's just it and and the otter the caliber 
I think it's going to be harder. Um, I think that if you have a 30, no one's going to introduce a 3840 revolver, even an Old West one, Old West styled, you know, Colt single action styled one. Um, now, because just ammo is going to be, it's brass, bullets, everything is hard to get. Everything is hard to get. Uh, and that's just one example. So I think people are not going to be interested in new guns. I think people are going to just kind of um, look at the guns they have. And I think odd caliber guns might be going down in price. Unless it's a super collectible. Uh, you know, I think we'll see. Here's here's an example. 1907 Winchesters. Uh, Ten years ago, they weren't selling for that much. Three, 350 325 You get a nice one for 450 or 5 Really nice one. Um, but good shootable one was 350 bucks. Then they went up to like their 600 bucks. Okay, uh, 351 Winchester is was hard to get then, and it's impossible to get now. That gun is going to be another 350 dollar gun because it doesn't have um, a base where you can get ammo for it. So people are going to say, why do I want a gun with no ammunition? Why do I want one? So we'll see. We'll see. But yes, the uh, interest in new guns is just kind of kind of going. I mean, it's like I should just get am get as much ammo, make as much ammo, reload as much ammo, and uh, try to um, definitely try to keep the ones you have going. That's all you can do. Okay, why is the 308 Winchester no longer considered a good long-range cartridge? Well, that's because it's not a good long-range cartridge. <laughs> that just—that's the reason it's not considered that anymore. Um, I, I work with a lot of mil ex-military guys. I'm an ex-military guy myself, and the 308 cartridge is something people are like. Yeah, this seventh—they said 762 NATO. Yeah, 762 NATO. It's good, great this, great that. I don't know, and it is. It does have great uses, and it is a great cartridge in a lot of ways, and um, a very versatile cartridge. But it is not. Under what has happened in shooting in the last 20 years, it went from being a very popular choice for shooting at longer ranges to now it's no longer a choice. It's considered kind of a mid-range cartridge, which is what it is. I mean, I've seen it. Basically, no one will want to admit this, but beyond 700 yards, it's tough to make a hit with a 308. Now I know, yeah, they shoot a thousand yards at Camp Perry with M1As and M14s, but look at the giganto targets they use. I mean, absolutely gigantic. It's certainly not the 24-inch uh, plates that they use in in PRS. And what kills a 308 is not that it's inaccurate. It's not that it's bad. It's just that it can't drive the bullet fast enough. To, to flatten out that trajectory. And most misses are because of trajectory. Not really, and, and windage, if you have wind at, at longer ranges, but um, the, yes, the wind will help, but really trajectory, especially for somebody beginning, um, nobody understands. Nobody understands. If, you're, if your 6.5 Creedmoor is sighted in at 300 yards, it's going to drop like, what is it 20 inches at 500 yards so you will be 20 inches under the point of aim at 500 yards if you have a 300 yard zero okay 
that's significant because most riflemen are used to shooting at 100 200 or 300 yards where the bullet is still going very very fast and its drop is almost inconsequential just the way it is the farther out you go and, and even you get um, I forget what the the deal was I think it was 18 feet uh, you know guys who were shooting the old sharps and I think even the um, 577 450 Martini Henry um, to hit something at a thousand yards you know you were you, your flight the flight path of that bullet went to like eight you know and uh so you sit there and you go wow <laughs> that's that's a lot and it's easy to make a mistake then um you know you make a one click mistake and you don't know where the bullet went so that's a uh, that's the reason it's not but i tell you what it, at 600 meters in it is still a very deadly and a great cartridge and uh and, and a very it's still today even though it's uh came in 54 what does that make it 60 some years old 67 years old or whatever it is an extremely efficient cartridge design uh, very very good okay what is the most overrated firearm in your opinion uh, I rather than think about a single model because everybody could throw out single models and, and, and everything else so I would have to say that the most overrated type of firearm would be fancy hunting rifles. Um, they're expensive and their performance in many cases is really no better than something that's much more modestly priced. And, and you're paying sometimes a lot for decoration. Sometimes you're paying for weight savings. Um, so, you know, they they're not made to be target rifles so they they are what they are and they their accuracy standard does not have you know they will all claim oh this thing shoots in a half inch group at at 200 yards no 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 well until the barrel heats up you know i mean until it the the difference between a target rifle and a hunting contour type rifle is the fact that the uh, target rifle is designed to dissipate heat and maximize stability which a hunting rifle is designed to optimize lightweight and portability and power you know that's just the way it is so for my i don't since i don't hunt i don't see a lot of value in a lot of hunting rifles they're they're cool and they're interesting but they're just cool and interesting and they're not something that i i really spend a lot of time with okay where can you buy ammo or components? I was asked this um, just recently. The answer is I have no real good answer. I can just tell people, just keep looking, just keep looking. Um, I don't know if this is actually true, but it seems like some of the higher end, some of the higher end prices are coming down. Um, I think you can now kind of like 762 NATO some 556 five, and some nine millimeter rather than eight or nine hundred dollars a case uh they seem to be coming down a little bit but that could just be an illusion you know i i'd hate to say that i wouldn't bet the ranch that it's a uh, trend 
you know like the old the old saying I wouldn't bet the ranch on that but it seems like prices are coming down just a little bit just edging down a little bit so when that happens that's a sign that there's some more availability and that's a good thing you know what's that going to do to gun prices I mean when you look at the fact that you can buy a Glock 17, I, well, let's see, what did I see it at? A Glock 17L competition was 600 and some dollars, 600 and just under $700, okay? Um, Tull ammo, I know that's still selling for about $500 for a thousand rounds, and that's probably not something, you, well, for the Glock, it's probably okay, but you know it's certainly not high-end defense or um, target ammo so I would assume that high-end target and defense ammo which would be somewhere almost the price of the gun a thousand rounds would be the price of the gun that is unsustainable economics in my opinion um, people aren't gonna buy guns that they're not gonna shoot um, there are some there are well I shouldn't say that there are a few people who will buy guns, buy a little bit of ammo, function fire it, put it in a drawer. I mean, that's kind of the old paradigm. Um, I don't know that that's really all of that true anymore. There are some people like that maybe, but uh, most people who buy guns, if you make a thousand dollar investment in something or, uh, you know, a heavy investment in something, they're going to want to use it. You know, people don't buy cars and then just stick them in the garage because, you know, gasoline is $20 a gallon you know I mean they when people buy something they generally want to use it so um, I would say that uh, you know gun prices I don't know where they're gonna go I don't know how ammo prices will affect gun prices right now it seems to be depressing the market I'll tell you that right up front just like I was speaking about earlier um, the Ruger 5.7 pistol the Ruger 57 I think that's what they call it uh, that seems to be coming down in price because there's hard to find ammo for it and, we, and if you do I'm sure that it is costly so um, that is gonna, that is going to come down in price and in fact I would not be surprised to see some models get discontinued uh, simply because ammo availability just isn't there we'll see we'll, we'll have to see um, going to be very very interesting all right our next question is what have you learned while hand loading during the pandemic and ammo rush of 2020 okay well first of all i've learned a couple things number one i need to keep more primers in stock and um, you know should the price come back down to sane levels where you're paying maybe 25 or 30 dollars a thousand I think it pays to uh, put in 10,000 primers over time. You know, you buy a thousand primers a month. So there you go. But it pays to keep components in stock. Uh, and they don't take up that much room. Bullets probably take up the most room. Most hand loaders keep, keep you know, buckets of brass or cans of brass around. So, you know, that's about the biggest thing I learned. Um, another thing that I've learned is, and this is interesting, I, I, before, before the ammo rush, I wasn't hand loading nine millimeter because basically for cheap range ammo, tall ammunition was so cheap that I would just buy it. 
you know, I just I just bought it. And there's other there's other low price nine millimeter round was was low price nine millimeter round. Uh, so I didn't really hand load any. But since I've been hand loading some nine millimeter, one of the most remarkable things I found is that there are so many manufacturers of nine millimeter brass and I'm talking boxer primed reloadable brass that it's amazing how different some of the cases are uh, as far as just rim thickness rim diameter um, even case length a lot of things are very different between between these uh, um, different manufacturers especially foreign made manufacturers European versus American versus South American versus you know anywhere else you can you can get uh, nine millimeter ammo and and that creates a, a challenge when you're hand loading because you know making sure that uh, you can put a good taper crimp on the uh, on the case uh, even just the case fitting into the shell holder can sometimes be a little bit challenging haven't really found too many problems but it's one of, one of the amazing kind of revelations is that how good nine millimeter handguns really are that they handle this variety that all of these that all of these uh different kind of specifications of ammunition you you would think that nine millimeter ammo is nine millimeter ammo the same way 38 special doesn't really change too much between manufacturers you know it's pretty much the same well nine millimeters a little different and uh so it'll be interesting to see you know how some of this plays out if, if it's as reliable as it should be or if it's as accurate as it should be and I've got a few guns I can test on both of those things in so it'll be very interesting but uh, definitely definitely the variance and variables in the specifications of nine millimeter brass has been one of the things that uh, you know I've noticed it a little bit before but it's really come home this time in fact, there was an article in the uh, USPSA shooting magazine that they send out every every other month or every three months, whatever it is, uh, a while back. And it talked about the difference, the same kind of issue in 38 Super Brass and how different manufacturers... Because there's, there's a lot of 38 Super that comes from, um, well, Magtech and a few places. It comes from overseas, so... Uh, Fiocchi or Fiocchi. I always called it Fiocchi, but some people pronounce it Fiocchi. You know, I, I found I found that there's, you know, basically there's different types of 38 Super, and uh, it's amazing to me that some 38 Super will fit into like a Star 9 millimeter Largo pistol. Some of them will take 38 Super ammo. Mine, mine will not. Which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. Because that that is a pretty hot round, um, but how do how do some pistols take it? Well, I think it's manufacturing tolerance of the pistols, but also you have this rim tolerance on the 38 Super that if you get some smaller or undersized rims, it'll feed right feed right through. And uh, the article I'm I'm talking about talked about it in uh, terms of race guns and 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 things like this. I actually emailed the author and said, "Hey, this is great. This is this explains why some Spanish pistols in nine millimeter Largo will take 38 Super." And and he agreed with me. He emailed me back and agreed with me that, yeah, hey, there's there's just enough tolerance in all of these things, and when you kind of stack them up, 
you can wind up with a 38 super in your nine millimeter Largo. So that's that's another aspect of the thing I've learned about the variants of brass manufacture, which don't really think about. And if it's if it's really if I really had to guess, you know, 38 super is an odd duck. It's supposed to take a three five six. 130 grain full metal jacket bullet that's the standard bullet you know kind of round nose fairly unremarkable bullet in many ways but i've seen especially magtech and i will swear to you because magtech has never shot for me as well as the, some of the other things and i think they load nine millimeter bullets so i think they're loading a 354 or a 355 bullet in it that you know again does that is there enough of a difference to make a difference? I don't know, but I think they're using a 354 bullet, and I don't think it shoots as accurately. That's just my guess. That's just my guess. Because um, Magtech 38 Super did not perform particularly well for me. But anyway, take that for what it's worth. That's one of the th one of the things that uh, that I have come across in the great pandemic. Here's the next question. Uh, this was asked of me by someone who's who's basically he was he's a little bit older than me. So um, the question was such: When I grew up, the Chauche, the nineteen model nineteen fifteen Chauche used by U.S. troops in World War One that came from the French, was considered absolute garbage and trash. However, lately some of the some gun people have gotten a hold of these these weapons and either have rehabbed them or refurbished them or deactivated them and they seem to be pretty pleased with them and and they seem to be trying to rehabilitate the reputation of the chauche what do you think of it uh the the answer is i grew up with the same thing the chauche was considered you know inferior in every way um and it was considered not really suitable. It was just there. My thoughts on the Chauche are this. Number one, it was kind of the first, it was really kind of the first weapon of its type uh, in its weight class, shooting a service rifle cartridge. It was developed during the heat of combat. So it, it wasn't as refined and it certainly didn't have the bugs worked out of it. And it was thrown into production, thrown into the hands of the troops. And it was it was marginally successful. It was reasonably successful for what it was. I mean, if you're running across no man's land, um, and you wanna you wanna fire at a German machine gun position, I think a Chauche might be a little bit better than your 1886 Lebel rifle. That's just that's just me. But uh, the the problem with it is, and they've they've actually have have sort of. The, the modern people who are shooting it have found some of the some of the problems um the the real truth was even if you give it cut it slack for being the first one being rushed into combat the chauche was trash okay it was unadulterated unreliable marginally useful junk and here are the reasons why uh, number one, you can't get a decent sight weld or stock weld on it and see the sights. It's not a comfortable, it has no ergonomics, okay? It was just, it is what it is, no ergonomics. Understand that's just the way that goes. Uh, it was rushed into production and they didn't have time to refine it. The um, When it overheats, because it uses kind of a, this strange 
kind of a long recoil system. When it uh, when it overheats, it locks up, and that was a big thing. If you read a lot about World War One, you read a lot of them like, "Hey, my my Chauche or Show Show," they called it, my Show Show, completely jammed. You know, and the only cure for that. There was no remedial action that would that would cure that. You had to let the gun cool down. I mean, so after a magazine or two, this thing this thing would just lock up. It would just get hot and lock up, and that was part of the design of the recoil system and a few other few other weaknesses in the uh, in the gun. the The next thing was for some odd and inexplicable reason, the side of the Chauche magazines were left open to anything outside. They had these large kind of windows cut into the magazine, which led in, of course, you know, trenches aren't very clean places. No combat is clean. And no open magazine would ever be satisfactory in any combat situation anywhere ever. Okay? It's just not. So I, I don't know why they designed that. That that seems to me to be such a basic a basic understanding of what what you're doing they never designed their the berthier rifle that way i mean it, you know it had that little clip the three and five shot clips that would that would go down and fall out the bottom they didn't leave that whole area open um it, it's amazing to me that 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 slipped by them because that was actually easily correctable so that never should have happened. But all those things added together. And uh, you, you can read there. Again, this is anecdotal because, you know, there was no analysis really conducted because there was no way the U.S. Army was going to keep the show show after World War One. There was no way that was going to happen, especially with the uh, the B.A.R. Uh, it, it essentially was... Um, incredible that this weapon was was had any use at all and i mean it was it was you read about it the anecdotal things are they would fire it till it stopped firing and then discard it and use something else not even you know waiting to try to put it back into action it would just get discarded a uh, part of that is is the urgencies of the immediate battle you know you don't have time to say hold, hold it and and play with this thing or hunch behind a tree or whatever and play with it when you're when you're pushing on sometimes you have to just push on and equipment that's not useful anymore is going to get tossed to the side and that's what happened to the chow che or the show show in in many many cases uh and the ones that as near as i can determine the ones that were used in combat were all in eight millimeter labelle so we had this kind of odd machine gun cartridge that everybody had to be uh, supplied with. There was a 30-06 version um, of the Chauche, but I don't think it ever made it into combat. And from what I understand, you know, Forgotten Weapons has kind of kind of done some things on that. It was even worse, even though the magazine windows had been corrected. And basically, the, the pressure of the 30-06 made the other problems with the gun even worse. So there was no salvaging that. Um, Post-World War One, the Chauche did have limited career. Um, as far as I know, it was used by Finland. Okay, Finland, a very small, recently independent country. When the Russian Revolution happened, Finland kind of used that as an opportunity, gained their independence. But at the time, population of Finland is only, is, is probably a million people. Okay, and with a million people, you have to fund an army some sort of at least patrol boat navy 
some sort of a nascent air force and in fact their first airplanes were kind of given to him by a, a swedish count who was who had some extra airplanes lying around his estate you know so they, they were not a high dollar deal and they bought uh surplus french weapons uh they bought the chauche and they bought the uh, uh ruby pistols you know those the spanish ruby pistols that the french bought during world war one at, at the end of the war obviously they had scads of these things, and they sold uh, at least some number, a fairly large number of them to the Finns. That, that's, you know, sometimes you have to buy what your budget will afford you. And um, and basically the Hins, the Finns, not the Hins, the Finns, and I'm part Finnish too, that's a terrible thing. But anyway, the Finns had inherited uh, Moisendegant rifles. And so, consequently, they and they had other other things too, you know, a hodgepodge of, of all sorts of things, and they would trade away the hodgepodge weapons for more Moisendegants that they could get from countries like Germany or other countries that that would have a supply of them as a result of the war. So, I think Poland was one that, uh, you know, they became independent and they had a, a hodgepodge of weapons too. So there were several countries that were kind of buying, selling, trading away the weapons they didn't want for the weapons that they did want and it was mutually beneficial the uh, polish wanted eight millimeter mauser rifles the finns had some they trade them they get rid of and the uh the poles get rid of the moisendegants so it all worked out but the finns did not have a lot of money for machine guns so they bought chow chase and and used them for you know in a peacetime army for they could be used for some period of years at least to train people um, and then get something better a little later on. The Greeks used them. The Greeks had them. I think they called them the gladiator. So I don't know what kind of how far or what kind of combat they were used in if they made it to the Second World War or not. I tend to doubt it, but they might have. You never know. I think some were used at least in the early phases of the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> probably, probably uh, um, not very... Uh, uh, satisfactory there either I can imagine although I I would think that fighting in Spain because uh, it's a, a bit drier it'd be dustier but at least it would be drier maybe they uh, operated a little bit better and I think even a few were used in the uh, um, Israeli war of independence in 1948 war um, a few may have even found it in the act in there I, I remember reading something like that you know because they again the Israelis were just desperate if people in europe who are desperate for weapons whether it's Finns, whether it's you know spain whether it's greece whether it's israel you know people in that geographic area in that time frame if you were desperate you could probably get a chauche if they weren't given to you they could you probably got them at scrap metal prices so yeah the chauche was complete complete utter devastating garbage that you would not ever want to issue to your soldier in a um, in a intense combat situation and it's something that was just marginally effective for even peacetime army or training so that's the deal there the chauche has not improved with age that's for sure all right next uh by the way i need to warn you we're going to go a little bit later today um it's been a while since i put out a podcast and i had a few things uh, stack up and some things came in last minute so uh we'll go a little bit longer today i actually recorded this show into two pieces um so anyway uh we'll get a little bit longer episode today 
So the next question is, did you see the Forgotten Weapons rant by Ian about cheap ammunition and machine guns? And if so, what did you think about it? Okay, well, I, I fundamentally agree with them. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than bad ammo. There's nothing more disappointing. And I've had this happen to me. Um, the <laughs> I, I've told this story. I had this beautiful looking eight millimeter surplus ammo and I, I actually kind of kept it squirreled away you know for 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 years and then when I went out to actually test fire it because I wanted to use it um, every other round was a dud okay um, there had been no indication that this had been stored badly no indication that 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 would happen whatsoever but this little trove of ammo turned out to be a little trove of not very good ammo so uh, the the deal with that is, um, yes, surplus ammo runs the spectrum, and it runs the spectrum from very, very good to very, very poor. Um, what causes the ammo to be poor is either storage conditions, storage conditions and age, um, sometimes just age alone because maybe some of the components are just chemically breaking down or the primers go inert, even though it's been stored reasonably well. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's quality of manufacture. I had some Egyptian 9mm years and years ago that was just horrible stuff. It was horrible and it was dirty. It was, I mean, it fired, but it was worse. It, it made tall ammunition look like, uh, you know, some sort of super match grade super stuff. That's how, that's how bad this stuff was. So, you know, but hey, I used it because it, it was safe. It was just dirty and corrosive and you had to be very careful and clean out your guns very carefully. So anyway, we have all that stuff. We have that stuff going on. And, uh, you know, I, I do agree that if you've spent thousands of dollars for a Class three weapon firing, I would rather see somebody hand load for it and, and do good quality hand loads than use some questionable surplus. Uh, just the way that goes. Um, and some of the surplus... Very little of it is dangerous, although I would say the Turkish ammo is, is probably on the borderline. That that stuff, the Turkish 8mm Mauser, that stuff that was on the market, um, I've got, actually got a case of it someplace. I've never opened it or used it. But that's the kind of stuff where, you know, you kind of bought that for component value. Um, I think if, you know, that's the kind of stuff you, you can uh, test fire it and see if it... Uh, if it if it seems to be overly powerful and test fired in a Mauser rifle not not your Hakim because it will blow a Hakim apart but um, you know it can always be pulled you can pull the bullets dump the powder because powder is still available and, and fairly cheap and just put in a, a you know good book load and you reseat the bullet you know, and, and uh, uh, put in a good book load of the powder and reseat the bullet. And hey, you're off to the races. You know, you probably have to chamfer the case and do a few things. But hey, it's 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 there. It's it's a, that's a reasonable course of action. Better than shooting stuff. You know, when you think about it, think about an M4 shoots a 55 or 62 grain bullet at around 3,000 feet per second. Well, this Turkish ammo. And granted, now this is out of a 30-inch barrel, um, 
Mauser, but it was shooting it was shooting stuff as a uh, 178 grain bullet, eight millimeter bullet, at uh, you know 2,900 feet per second, or or even a little bit more than that. So, you know that's that's really powerful, and those would would really almost be in the category of kind of proof loads. So. Uh, frankly, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even waste my time firing it. I'm just going to tear it apart, reuse it. And, it, and it makes no sense to reuse the powder. There's some stuff on the internet saying, hey, you know, dump the powder, weigh, weigh the powder in each cartridges, kind of get an average. And if it's, let's just say for numbers, it's you know X grains. Well, you take X grains and you minus 10 percent. You know, and that'll probably calm it down. That would be, but that's that's a little too much, and you still don't know what that powder is, and it's a lot of that. A lot of that ammo is getting to be 70 years old. You know, 65, 70 years old. It's just a lot better to use use a moderate load of of uh, modern powder, and I think you'd be a lot happier with that. Cost is a little higher, but it's not going to be enough uh, to make a real difference. So that's what I would definitely do with that with that uh, Turk surplus ammo. The stuff that has bad primers, you're usually just hosed because um, almost all of it is Burdan primed and sometimes those primers are odd size. So you're, you're, probably, you're probably toast. But uh, if the primers are still good, you can uh, you can you know replace the powder charge. Just like that, that breakdown ammunition, it used to have 30-06 ammo that was mil military ammo that had been broken down the primers had been replaced with uh, non-corrosive primers and a new powder charge and they would you know seat reseat the bullet so uh you know there's there is some of that stuff around there's some um some stuff coming out of russia right now uh which is the corrosive military stuff where they pull the uh steel core bullets because can't have any of those can't have any of those and they basically then put a, a commercial, you know, lead, um, full metal jacket, lead core bullet on top and resell it. So some of that stuff's coming back in too. So you can get newly manufactured corrosive ammunition because it's corrosive um, um, primers. But, you know, that's easy. That's easy to clean up. So uh, not, a, not a big deal. So those are the deals with some of that some of that surplus ammo and some of the stuff that's going on um yeah the rant was a little strange to watch but you know it's it's one of those things um trying to make a point it is the timing seems weirder than anything else because we're in the middle of an ammo shortage so you know i've got some old 303 not much left but yeah the stuff you get a hang fire once in a while well, it's not worth scrapping. It's not worth getting totally rid of. And it's cordite loaded stuff, so it's, you know, there's no way you're going to salvage it. You know, and and if and it's the primers. It's not actually even the the cordite that's a problem. So, you know, hey, you just use it and that's just the way you go cuz guess what? You can't buy 303 ammo. PPU apparently is not making it. And if they are, it's certainly not getting into stores. Um so, you know, we're kind of stuck with some of this surplus ammo, and it may be less than optimal, but it's better than nothing. So, as long as it is not dangerous, as long as it is not um, lodging a projectile in the bore, 
or as long as it is not woefully overloaded like some of the Turk ammo has been probably safe probably safe to use a hang fire is a pain in the butt and it will you know um, not the most accurate thing in the world when you hear that click then then a split second later there's a bang you know that's a hang fire but you know there's just no there's no choice because there is no replacement ammo out there if there were cheap replacement ammo I would say yeah definitely go for it all right the next question is did you hear that Hunter Biden failed a background check for a firearm and or lied on a background check on a firearm what is the story as you understand it I, I just saw the news story and apparently he'd purchased a firearm when he was still an unlawful user of narcotics which meant he would have had to lie on his 4473 and so I don't know where all that winds up apparently he was in possession of a firearm in 2018 and as part of a domestic disturbance call it was you know his his partner his wife or whatever it was threw it in a trash can I I don't know the um, the particulars of that um, all I can say is you know it just shows you that sometimes background checks don't don't really work and that a lot of times you know when it comes to gun control we they they uh, always want to go on a wild goose chase and the wild goose chase eventually winds up keeping instead of keeping guns out of the hands of the people who should not have them it winds up keeping guns out of the hands of law-abiding citizens that is the problem with every gun control proposal that they have so uh, consequently um, if Joe wants to uh, if sleepy old Joe wants to uh, uh, do something about gun violence he might want to start at home and, and uh, deal with his uh, that real winner of a son of his I mean you know here's the elected guy to run a country and, and look look at that look at what his family turns out like so anyway that's all I know about that particular uh, situation all right next question is what are your favorite sites for firearms your favorite internet or social media sites okay um, internet I like gun board forums they're very polite they got a lot of a lot of knowledge on there they're great depends what your interest is and there's probably some dedicated site to it which which probably contains a lot of information so yeah, going down the list of that doesn't doesn't really uh, do much to help I think there's even a high point forum so there you go um, on social media uh, Facebook is kind of the thing I I just you know there's classic fighting handguns is probably my current favorite some come and go there was there was um, I'm with Roscoe you know where they talked about the uh, kind of the snub guns and, and guns from the 30s and 40s that now there's a new film noir or noir guns uh, where they they basically talk over the same thing a lot of these groups they kind of start they happen and then they either get infiltrated or, or kind of get watered down and then a new group with the same interest will will start so you know you, they, they kind of have a life cycle is what I'm saying so 
essentially uh, there there was uh, one that was kind of dedicated to sort of the uh, Elmer Keith Skeeter Skelton uh, hot shots and jalapenos um, you know those kind of that kind of era of gun writer basically revolver centric so there there are a lot of good ones and, and then you know the, the interest in them kind of dies down and then the group either goes away or it never does anything new so those are the ones I'm kind of uh, following right now and uh, they're a lot of fun it's a lot of fun to see some of these guns from that were the that were the new hotness back in the 70s or the 80s or the 60s or even the 50s all of a sudden now they are you know kind of, they kind of reemerge and somebody's had one of these things in their family or in their possession or in their family for 50 or 60 years and they kind of uh, kind of pop out and it's kind of neat to see some of the stuff that used to be in gun magazines uh, that it actually exists and it's still still is uh, in existence today so um, very very good stuff you know again if you can tolerate Facebook it's 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 pretty intolerable most of the time but that's all right it, that's that kind of stuff is there and it can it can help you out so Anyway, I know we've gone a little bit long, and but this is it for the 97th episode of Old School Guns. Remember, you can always send me a question or comment. You can leave it on our carrier Podbean. Just leave it in the comments section. Or you can email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That's K-B-M-A-K-E-L at AOL.com. And I will answer it in the next podcast. But until then, this is Old School Guns, out.